Welcome, everyone. Does everyone have some notes? There are some notes over here. Anybody need any notes? We're looking at the end of chapter 13 today. But before we do that, that quiz, you know. Yeah, well, that doesn't, there's no excuses, you know. <laughs> That's what my students used to say. You know, I missed last week. Do I have to take the quiz, you know? No, you don't get any sympathy around here. You know? <laughs> we're trying to, we're in love. We're trying to do what's best for you here, okay? So we're going to make you take the quiz, all right? Okay. Number one, the most excellent way is the way of love. True, true. That's He's saying, I'm going to show you a more excellent way, and that's love, using the gifts with a demonstration of love. Two, Paul believed he could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. I said false, because uh, that would make him omnipresent, omniscient, I'm sorry. He would be omniscient if he could fathom all, you know, he's just using hyperbole there in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Even if I had that level of giftedness, I would be nothing without love. I could have the, I could have greater gifts than are even available. I could have the gift of omniscience, but if I didn't have love, it wouldn't really amount to anything. Apostles are essential to the church today. False, but some say yes. Remember, we talked about there, Bill Johnson and the new apostolic. <laughs> group that uh, argues that we should have apostles today, but no, we don't have any apostles. And apostles laid the foundation of the church. Uh, Christ used the apostles to and their associates to uh, write the New Testament for us, and uh, we have that as sufficient for what we need in this age. Fallible prophets are not true prophets. True, I would say. They're not true prophets because... Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, one of the characteristics of a true prophet is that what he says comes true. If it doesn't, he's not really a true, genuine prophet. You can't be fallible. But in the charismatic movement, it's argued today that, yes, a prophet can be fallible. He can say things and he may get it wrong. Sometimes he gets it right, sometimes he gets it wrong. The gift of teaching is not available today false, we think it probably is available today. Paul does not exactly say which gifts are temporary and which gifts are permanent. But it seems like the miraculous gifts, the more miraculous gifts are the ones that are not available today. They had a particular purpose. Mainly, their main purpose was to authenticate God's messengers, God's spokesmen. Paul says, the signs of apostles were displayed among you, signs, wonders, and miracles. And so they're, they're indicators of, of someone's authority as an apostle. So miracles are associated generally with the apostolic church and so forth. And uh, so some of those gifts, we believe, have ceased. We'll talk about that today. Uh, but many, most of, many of the gifts, we think, are still available today. Um. So we are dealing uh, with the last major division of First Corinthians, which is a long one, uh, chapter seven through sixteen nine, 
and uh, we are dealing with the section 12, 1 through 1440, dealing with spiritual gifts. That's the section we're in, and we've been in for a number of weeks. Last week uh, we met, the last time we met two weeks ago, we stopped at chapter 13 and verse 8. And so we'll pick up here today at chapter 13 and verse 9. Now, as we've noted, chapters 12 and 13 set the stage for really chapter 14. Chapter 14 is what Paul wants to get to. He wants to correct some abuses of the gifts in the church at Corinth, particularly the, the, the gift of tongues. He sees that the tongues being abused there, the gift of tongues, and he wants to regulate it, but he also regulates prophecy. Prophecy, even prophecy, needs to be regulated, as we will see. Um, so uh, chapters 12 and 13 lead up to chapter 14, which we'll get to today after we finish this last part of chapter 13. Uh, remember in chapter 12, he emphasized the need for the diversity of gifts. Uh, remember, because they have this fascination for the one gift for tongues. They're so fascinated with that. And Paul emphasizes there's a diversity of gifts. There's a need for this diversity of gifts. And he's trying to counteract this enthusiasm they have for the gift of tongues. Uh, the gift, that, that gift, their gift of tongues, they were just very, they thought very highly of that particular gift. Um, I've argued that contrary to the uh, charismatic view, the church, uh, the tongues in the church at Corinth were real languages, as was the case in the book of Acts. Everybody agrees that in the book of Acts you have real languages being spoken. But in the charismatic movement, it's argued today, it wasn't originally, remember we talked about the history back in the early days, 1900, in the charismatic movement, it was believed that the, lang- the tongues they were speaking were actual languages. They sent missionaries out to foreign countries because they said they wouldn't need to learn languages. They could just speak in tongues. Uh, but today, the charismatic movement believes these are not actual languages or at least human languages that can be deciphered as we can decipher all human languages today. Um the um, as we said they're sort of fascinated with this gift and Paul is less enthusiastic because apparently at Corinth this tongue speaking was not being interpreted not being translated and since people were just speaking in tongues no one could understand what was being said there was no edifying effect and you remember that's that's kind of the the, the principal thing that Paul emphasizes throughout these chapters especially when we get to chapter 14, is the gifts are for the edification of the church. They're not personal for personal edification, as we'll see. They're for edifying the church, building up of the church. Uh, that's, the pur- that's the purpose for all these gifts. And uh, the way the tongues were being used there in Corinth was not fulfilling that purpose. So Paul argues there, as we've seen in chapter 12, that though... All the gifts are necessary in the early church there. Some are more important. And he actually says, first apostles, then prophets, teachers. He does at least say in that case, apostles are very important because they laid the foundation of the church along with prophets. There was need for new revelation in this first century when there was no written scriptures hardly. 
Um, so Christ dies around 30, maybe 33. The first books are not written until about 49, you know, almost maybe 20 years later. And, you know, Paul is writing this book right here around AD 56. And uh, it's difficult to know if any Gospels were written in AD 56. Uh, may have been, may have very well been. Uh, Mark may have been written. Some say Matthew's debate about which Gospel was written first. But uh, so the books are just beginning to be written at this time. And so there's need for this revelation uh, from uh, prophets and so forth to establish the church, to uh, teach the church, to correct the church and so forth. Um, because the Corinthians are exercising the gift of tongues in sort of a selfish look at me sense, Paul moves on here in uh, chapter 13 to explain the importance of love in the exercise of these gifts. Uh, without love, that is exercising gifts, exercising exercising gifts for the sole reason of benefiting fellow believers, then these gifts don't have any real purpose. If, if you're not doing it in love, that is, you're not trying to benefit your fellow Christians, then they amount to nothing. They're of no real value. And uh, Paul talks about the necessity of love. We saw last week uh, the need for love and exercising gifts. If I... Even though I have, even though I'm omniscient, as we said in that quiz, even though I have can understand all mysteries, have all knowledge, I don't, I don't exercise love in the, in the exercising of that gift. I don't have love, then I'm nothing. He talks about the character of love uh, in verses four through seven. That was the last thing we talked about last time. Um, he said, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it's not boast, it's not proud. So this would appear to be a, a direct attack on the tongue speakers. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. That's exactly what we see, kind of see with the tongue speakers, a sort of a emphasis on oneself and, you know, pride and arrogance and that kind of thing. So... Um, we come then to this third section, the permanence of love in chapter 13, uh, verses 8 through 13. Um, we say here in this final section, Paul argues that love is permanent in contrast to the spiritual gifts that were so valued in Corinth, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. In contrast with spiritual gifts, which are for some for time alone, Love will go on manifesting itself throughout time and eternity. The gifts are bestowed for a purpose, and when they have served that purpose, they will cease to be. Since love endures forever, it's superior to these imperfect gifts, no matter how impressive they might be to the Corinthians. And so he says in verse 8, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So I say here, love never fails in the sense just mentioned in that it never ceases to exist, even in heaven. 
In contrast to love, spiritual gifts have a built-in obsolescence. They are not permanent. Even prophecy, which Paul will argue is quite beneficial for the building up of the church, will outlive its usefulness. It will cease one day. Prophecies are said to cease and knowledge pass away. But these are actually the same verb in Greek. So he says, you know, he translates them differently here, but prophecies, uh, they will cease. Uh, knowledge, it will pass away. It will cease off. So it's actually the same word here. The verb used with tongues, will be stilled, is different and has the idea of ceasing or stopping by themselves. Now, it's difficult to know, as I say here, if this tells us anything uh, particular about tongues. Does it tell us that we are to understand that the ceasing of tongues is somehow different? Is it earlier in prophecy? He doesn't say. Knowledge? Other miraculous gifts? The fact that tongues tongues will one day cease would seem to be a problem for most charismatics, I think, who believe tongues are a heavenly language since language will not cease in heaven. I think that might be a a slight problem. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Paul now explains, that's the word for here that begins verse 9, that even with these miraculous gifts that are revelatory in nature, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, the revelation provided by these gifts is only partial or incomplete. Paul contrasts partial revelation to perfect revelation here. So we prophesy in part... But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So the contrast is between partial revelation and perfect revelation. There's coming a time, Paul says, when completeness comes. Sometimes that's translated the perfect. You may have seen in other translations when the perfect comes. Translated when completeness comes. Knowledge will be complete. Now I'm going to discuss in just a moment this completeness. What does that mean when it says the completeness comes? But I'll do that after... uh, completing the rest of this. Verse 11. When I was a child, and I I talked like a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So say here, verse 11 confirms by way of an appeal to personal experience what has been said about the incomplete and partial character of revelation that comes from the miraculous gifts. The point being that These belong to the state of childhood, but when manhood comes, I think that's the completeness in verse 10, clearly, they will no longer be needed. These gifts will no longer, and so they'll be put away. The contrast is between limited understanding versus mature understanding. So, now we're in the stage, Paul says, of partial knowledge we know in part in this particular time he's talking about but there's coming a time of completeness he describes this partial time as like when I was a child I reasoned like a child Uh, but then there's coming a mature state when this limited understanding will be gone and we'll have mature understanding verse 12 For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. 
But then, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know even as I am fully known. The illustration of verse 11 is now further explained. Notice the word for beginning verse 12 and verse, uh, verse 11 and verse 12. What childhood is to manhood, so the present life now is to the future time when completeness comes. Now we see through a reflection as in a mirror. Then. The reference is to seeing only a reflection as in a mirror. Describes the experience in antiquity of viewing oneself in a polished bronze or copper mirror that at best gave a distorted reflection. Bronze mirrors were manufactured in Corinth, as a matter of fact. Um, of fact. Um, in fact, Corinth was noted for its bronze uh, doors, bronze mirrors, and other things made of bronze. They were bronze, supposedly. Some doors in the, in the temple in Jerusalem were Corinthian bronze. Paul, uh, uh, Paul's point um, is that our present knowledge is not perfectly clear it is incomplete. We're looking as in a mirror darkly. We don't see things perfectly. It's incomplete. We're still addressing the same principle here. Now, Paul says, our knowledge is in part. Just as he explained in verse 9, we know in part. The miraculous gifts only give partial knowledge. The completeness of verse 9 is now described as being a state when Paul shall know fully even as he is known. So in the complete state, whenever, whenever whatever that is, I'll know, Paul says, fully even as I am known. This sounds like Paul is alluding to the Old Testament references that speak of seeing God face to face. There's a number of these. I'll just put some of them up here. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Deuteronomy 34. And so then no prophet has risen is like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So this face to face seems to be a reference, as we say here, to uh, seeing God face to face. Paul does not mean that at a time he will be granted omniscience, an attribute of God, but at the coming of Christ, so you can see where I'm thinking the completeness is here, at the coming of Christ, he will no longer be depraved and suffer the effects of sin. Thus, without these limitations, he will be able to understand God and his word so as to know himself more truly as God knows him. So I'm saying at the coming of Christ or when we see Christ, when we don't have this depravity, then it's possible to know more fully, to know completely. Not, not We're not God. We're never going to be omniscient. But we'll know even as I am fully known. I'll understand myself in a way that I don't understand myself now. I won't have this depravity. I'll have this more complete knowledge. Um in the meantime, all our understanding is indirect and incomplete, even with the miraculous gifts of revelation, including tongues. We still don't have, in Paul's day, he didn't have complete knowledge. There is debate about what Paul means in verse 10, when the completeness comes. 
or you know, it's the word when the perfect comes, when the mature comes, something like that. It's been argued that it refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture. There's a number of views here, but maturity of the church, the canon of Scripture, there's a number of different views here, which would have been with the writing of the book of Revelation at the end of the first century. But this seems difficult, to me at least, to harmonize with Paul's statement that at that time we shall know fully even as we are fully known. It seems best, as I have alluded, to understand the completeness as a reference to the time and state of affairs associated with the coming of Christ and our coming into his presence. The main reason for seeing a reference to the completion of the canon is that it provides a strong argument for cessationism, the belief that all the miraculous gifts practiced by the early church have been suspended for the duration of the present age. So, uh, I'm a cessationist, (laughs) and so I wish I could believe this, (laughs) this argument, because if it was taught, if it is, if this completeness is talking about uh, the coming of Scripture, the closing of the canon, that kind of thing, it would be a a very strong argument that you know the the miraculous gifts have ceased and so forth. But I, I just don't, I just can't quite uh, get there. Myself, so I don't uh, hold to that. Um, um, so, as I say here, um, however, it seems doubtful that the Corinthians would be able to understand the completeness as a reference to the completion of the New Testament canon of Scripture. Um, so, that's what's hard hard for me at least to accept the argument that somehow the Corinthians would know when Paul says when the completeness comes when the perfect comes they would they would be able to understand the completion of the canon the canon is just the New Testament is just being written now what its final state is going to be is not known maybe maybe God revealed it to Paul but he didn't reveal it to anybody we don't Christians living here at this time don't know they know there's Old Testament books. They know Paul's writings are authoritative. They may have never seen a gospel yet. It's, it's, it's unclear that they would somehow know this. That's what's a little difficult for me. Uh, now, our church holds to a cessationist position. I just don't believe that this offers support for it. Uh, now, I don't know whether Ken does or not. Does Do you know if Ken holds this? Or, I can't remember. I We've never discussed it. I'll have to ask him. <laughs> so at the seminary where Jim and I went and attended, we have some professors who believe it does teach cessationism, and there's others like me who don't believe it does. So there's a split here on that. It's just you know difference of opinion about this. But I, I don't I don't particularly see it, but some do. Um, uh, I just don't. I believe in cessationism. I just don't believe this verse offers. Support in a, in a second, I'm going to present some arguments for cessationism. I'm going to talk about cessationism, present some arguments for it. But after verse 13, verse 13, and now these three remain: faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And now that is in the present age, faith, hope, and love remain. This triad, faith, hope, and love, appear in Paul's other letters. It's a common triad. Colossians 1, 
We have heard of your faith and of your love, the faith and love that springs from hope. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation. These are common terms that Paul uses, faith, hope, and love. These are essential Christian virtues for the entire church age, whereas prophecy, knowledge, and tongues are not, and had but a narrow shelf life, so to speak. But love is the greatest since it will last beyond the coming of Christ. Both faith and hope will be replaced by sight, at least probably in the sense that Paul means, in the sense Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. So Paul says, because we don't actually see the Lord, we're away from home, we're not in heaven. We live by faith. We believe in Jesus Christ, though we've never seen him. Uh, We believe what the Bible says about him. So we live by faith. Uh, We are confident, I say, prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But there's coming a day in the sense that we will not live by faith anymore because we'll actually see him. It won't be quite, it won't be the same thing. Romans 8, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. That is, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for our glorified bodies. For in this we hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope means a confident expectation. So we're, we, were, we were saved in this confident expectation that one day we will see Christ, we'll be glorified, we'll have glorified bodies, and so forth. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what, he, what they already have? See, you don't hope if you already have it. We live in hope. We live in expectation and trust, and we're waiting on Christ. But one day we won't have to hope. <laughs> we won't have to. We'll have, we'll have it. It'll be reality. So uh, love, however, will remain forever. All right, let's talk about cessationism. So I said I don't think the completeness argues for cessationism, but I do believe in cessationism. That is, the miraculous gifts have ceased in the apostolic age. Arguments for it. The common belief of all Protestants before the 20th century was that the miraculous gifts found in the early church had ceased at the end of the first century. For 1,800 years, no one claimed to have the gifts of tongues or healing. On the other hand, there was no single verse that teaches cessationism unless it's 1 Corinthians 13.10, which I doubt... But that does not mean that cessationism is not true. The doctrine of the Trinity is a first principle of the Christian faith, yet there is no single verse that teaches the Trinity. We should first note that though Paul performed miracles, they seem to be fading toward the end of his life. I mean, I can't make an absolute case for this, but it's interesting that here the Apostle Paul, as you get to the end of the first century, end of his life, the miracles that we see him do in the book of Acts, you know, 
He raises people from the dead. He heals people. In 1 Timothy 5.23, he told Timothy, Stop drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Paul did not heal Timothy, but described a medicinal treatment. 2 Timothy, this is you know the last epistle Paul writes, the end of his life, right before he is, uh, according to tradition, he was uh, head, head cut off at Rome. In 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul says he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. So Paul is on his way to Rome, and he leaves Trophimus sick. Why don't you heal him, Paul? You know, I mean, you've got these great miraculous gifts. The writer of Hebrews asks his readers, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So it sounds like the writer of Hebrews is more of a second-generation Christian. That's why this is one of the arguments that's used to say Paul did not write Hebrews. Is This sounds like someone who says, uh, you know, this everything that we know was confirmed to us by those who heard the Lord. We, we including himself, didn't have any direct contact. Paul would never say that. <laughs> Read Galatians chapter 1. The things that I got, I got from Revelation from Jesus Christ. So uh, this writer says, uh, uh, these things were confirmed to us. God also just testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the impression, I mean, just the impression here is that the miracles were associated with this first generation of Christians. Historically, we know that miraculous gifts ceased in the church. I thought I would give you some quotes. So if you read church history, if you took time to read church history, you would see that the, the miraculous gifts ceased. Here's John Chrysostom. If you ever heard of his name or not, he's a very famous man in the early church, one of the most famous, you know, the Roman Catholic Church would call them church fathers, so we, we call them church fathers, because he's just a very famous man, wrote tons of stuff. We have lots of his writings. His name Chrysostom means golden throat or golden mouth because he was kind of a well-known preacher. But he was uh, he was he was the bishop, the archbishop, or the patriarch of the church at Constantinople, modern Istanbul. And so that was that became the most important church in the Christian world, especially after the West kind of fell. Rome was obviously important, but very very important man <clears throat> wrote all kinds of writings, commentaries. He says, uh, this whole place is very obscure. He's talking here about 1 Corinthians 12. But the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation being such as then used to occur, used to occur, but now no longer take place. So if you read Chrysostom, I just quoted one passage, you'll see when he talks about the gifts in 1 Corinthians, he says, some of this is obscure to me. I don't, we don't understand it all because nobody's speaking in tongues. Nobody's got these gifts. They're, they're gone. Augustine, the most famous of the early church theologians. Uh, he says, In the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell on them that believed, and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for there was the betokening, betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. 
That thing was done for a sign, and it passed away. So I'm skipping a lot of people in the church, but I'm jumping up to Martin Luther. In the early church, the Holy Spirit was sent forth in visible form. He descended upon Christ in the form of a dove and in the likeness of fire upon apostles and other believers. This visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to the establishment of the early church, as were also the miracles that accompanied the gift of the Holy Ghost. Paul explained the purpose of these miraculous gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the visible appearance of the Holy Ghost ceased. Jonathan Edwards. Uh, you've heard Pastor refer to him. He's um, New England preacher, pastor, theologian. Some say the greatest theologian in America produced. I'd say Warfield later, but some say Edwards. In the days of his, that is Jesus' flesh, his disciples had a measure of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, being enabled, ena- being enabled thus to teach and to work miracles. But soon after that, the canon of Scripture being completed, when the Apostle John had written the book of Revelation, which he wrote not long before his death, these miraculous gifts were no longer continued in the church. For there was now com- completed an established written revelation of all the mind and will of God, wherein God has fully recorded a standing and all-sufficient rule for his church of all ages. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century, they had attained to the summit of piety. They had received the powers of the worlds to come, not miraculous gifts which are denied us in these days, but the powers with which the Holy Ghost endows a Christian. So not the miraculous gifts which are denied us in these days. The works of the Holy Spirit, which are at this time vouchsafed to the church of God, are every way as valuable as those early miraculous gifts which have departed from us. The work of the Holy Spirit by which men are quickened from their death in sin is not inferior to the power which men speak with tongues. Here's Warfield, famous Princeton theologian, a very influential person in uh, America, American theological thinking. These gifts were part of the essentials of the apostles as the authoritative agents of God in founding the church. Their function thus confined them to distinctively the apostolic church and they necessarily passed away with it. So I'm just trying to show here, it's been the tradition, understanding these gifts have not been around. Uh, during the church age. I say periods of miracles have been rare in history. If miracles happen every moment, they're not miracles. They're just, you know, there's nothing extraordinary about them. You got Moses and Joshua, sort of the first period of miracles. Elijah, Elisha. Then miracles are pretty much withheld. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who ever was, according to Jesus, did no miracles. Miracles are sort of withheld so that when Jesus comes on the scene, take note of this. 
Take, take note of this. This guy does these miracles. Yes, I'm sorry. Just a, a small point. Are those dates next to the names, are those like service dates or living dates? Or? Those are... Um, those... Warfield was born in 1851. Yeah, I must have got the wrong dates there. 1851, yeah. yeah I may have... Uh, that, that's when you... That's... This, uh, Princeton. Yeah, I probably got the Princeton date there. Yeah, that's a little too short for, for him. And I don't know if I messed up on the others or not. Now, Jonathan Edwards only lived to be 50. That's right for Edwards because yeah. he only lived to be 50-something. Sorry, sorry to interject. Oh, that's all right. It's a good point. I'll, I'll change that. I don't know how I got Unless I just put down a... Um, a wrong letter, a wrong number there, and that's possible. Might be, might be earlier. So I say these miracles are rare in history. When I say these miraculous gifts have ceased, I am not saying that God cannot still do miracles in this age. He may, but if so, they are probably very rare. Miracles were primarily intended as a confirmation of God's special messengers and their message. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. Remember, in 2 Corinthians, they're questioning his apostleship. And Paul says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including, what are those marks? These are not the marks of the average Christian. These are the marks of the true apostle. Signs, wonders, and miracles. After the messengers had brought their message, they would no longer be needed. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and the New Testament prophets laid the foundation of the church in the first century. These gifts would no longer be necessary once the church was established in the first century and the canon of scripture was complete. Paul indicates that the apostles were the mediators of the miraculous gifts. Remember, he says... 2 Corinthians 12, 12, signs, wonders, miracles. Miracles were not the signs of a true believer, but a true apostle, which means they were to be found in association with apostolic ministry, under an apostolic umbrella, we might say. The fact that the apostolate ceased would also seem to lead us to the conclusion that the signs of an apostle must likewise have ceased. Also, the ceasing of the apostolic suggests that all forms of special revelation like prophecy and tongues have ceased. Direct revelation in the early church was always channeled through apostles, either directly or by apostolic influence. So that's my case for cessationism. All right, we look at chapter 14. This is the chapter Paul has wanted to get to because he wants to address the abuse of this gift as he sees it, the gift of tongues in the church. Now that Paul has uh, commended the excellence of the way of love, the Corinthians should be able to accept the teaching of the present passage, namely that the showy gift of tongues with which the Corinthians seem to be fascinated is inferior to the most use, more useful gift of prophecy in the gathering of the gatherings of the church. Paul begins with a general affirmation of the superiority of prophecy to other gifts, verse 1, and then follows with a comparison of tongues and prophecy, showing the latter to be preferable. Verses 2 through 25. Prophecy is preferable because it's always intelligible. 
But that's not the case with tongues, which require an additional gift of interpretation. The purpose of the gifts is edification of the church, and that means prophecy, being immediately understandable, will always be superior to tongues. The noun edification and the verb edify are used seven times in chapter 14 and are the key theme. And I'll be alluding to this as we go through. Now, in the NIV, they're not always translated edify. Remember, edify means to be built up. Sometimes the NIV translates edify, built up. Some Once it translates, it's strengthened. So to be edified is to be built up in your faith, to be strengthened in our faith, to mature, that kind of thing. All right. The first verse here is the affirmation of the general superiority of prophecy. Verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Paul begins his discussion with a summary of chapter 13. Follow the way of love. Love is a quality that should be growing in the life of every Christian. As long as Christians are developing in love, it's also appropriate for them to eagerly desire. This is the Greek word zela we talked about used in 1231. Again, it's the plural meaning to be zealous for something. The Corinthians as a church should be zealous or eager for spiritual gifts, but especially prophecy. With this phrase, Paul outlines the basic content of this section, namely that in connection with the problems that had developed in Corinth, the gift of prophecy was more desirable than tongues. Now we come to this long section, verses 2 through 25. A comparison of tongues and prophecy showing the latter to be superior to the former. Paul says, first of all, in verses 2 through 19, prophecy will benefit more than will tongues. And he states that, first of all, in verses 2 through 5. Verse 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Paul explains the inadequacy of tongues. Uninterpreted tongues have no value for people in the assembly. For as Paul says, no one understands them. This verse is understood understood by charismatics to mean that people cannot understand these tongues because they're not actual human languages in contrast to those in Acts. But such an interpretation fails to comprehend the context of Paul's statement, in my opinion. Paul means that no person in the Corinthian assembly, he doesn't mean no person in the whole world, but we're talking about the Corinthian assembly. If anyone who speaks in a tongue in the Corinthian assembly does not speak to the people in the assembly, but to God, because they, no one's going to understand in the assembly. No person in the Corinthian assembly would normally understand the language spoken by the tongue speaker since it would be foreign to the Corinthians who spoke Greek. As we have already noted, there is absolutely no example, either in the New Testament itself or in all of Greek literature outside the New Testament, where the word tongue, glossa, is used of unintelligible, incoherent gibberish, which the charismatic movement claims is biblical tongues. A person speaking The demotic language of Egypt, as on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.10, 
in the Corinthian assembly would only be understood by God himself. But the purpose of tongues or any spiritual gift was to communicate, was not to communicate with God. So Paul says, yeah, you, God could, God will understand the language, but that's not the purpose of tongues. It's not to communicate with God. It's for the common good. It's for the benefit, the edification of the assembly. The fact that Paul says the tongue speaker does not speak to people but to God is used by charismatics, charismatics to argue for a private devotional use of tongues outside of the assembly. One that is not edifying to the assembly, but edifying somehow to the individual. But a believer cannot be edified and God glorified by the continual repetition of words whose meaning is unknown to the speaker. Edification, being built up in the faith, spiritual growth, cannot bypass the believer's mind. You cannot bypass your mind. One must understand in order to be edified. You've got to understand to be edified. One must understand in order to be edified. It does not come by some sort of osmosis. Uh, a Christian who does not speak English, say a Christian from some country, some foreign country outside the United States, uh, they could attend CBC for years. They could hear all the sermons. They could hear all the teachings. They wouldn't be edified one bit if they didn't understand what was being said. Just sitting in the service, hearing the preacher preach, hearing people teach, doesn't edify them. If it, they, they, there's nothing entering the mind that they understand. Uh, even if they listen to every sermon intently, and they wouldn't get anything. You've got, to, you've got to understand. Intelligibility is what Paul is going to talk about here. The reason why the uninterpreted tongue speaker does not speak to people but to God is because people in the Corinthian assembly would only have understood the Greek language. Also, the idea of self-edification is contrary to the very purpose of all the spiritual gifts, which is for the common good. There is no purpose of self-edification, I don't think. The word mysteries, because he Paul says, no one understands what you're saying. They're just uttering mysteries. Mysteries, in Paul's writings, always refers to truths about God and his program that were for a time hidden but are now being made known. So Paul's saying, you're just, yeah, you're getting new revelation. They're mysteries, they're new truths. That's how Paul uses the word mystery. Mystery doesn't mean mysterious, remember. It means something that is revealed now that was not known in the past. i just put a couple examples. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me that is the mystery made made known to me by revelation. As I have already been writing briefly, and reading this you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery he's talking about there is Jew and Gentile in one body. Paul says, this is something that was made known to me. They were going to have this Jew and Gentile in one body. No longer Israel, as we had in the past. Colossians 1.25, I had become its servant by the commission of God, the commission God gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations is now disclosed to God's people. 
So Paul talks a lot about mystery, but he means truths that were known, not known in the past, but now are being known. So these people who are speaking prophecies in the first century, the canon's not written, you know, the Bible's not written, they're giving truth to the new, to the, this new church, direction, things that were not known, not revealed before. Tongues, if interpreted, were capable of communicating new revelation from God, as did prophecy. So tongues is very similar to prophecy. It's revelation, uh, but it has to be interpreted. It has to be translated. Verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. When the prophet speaks, what the prophet speaks is summed up in the word strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The word strengthening is the word edification, also used in 5, 12, 26, the theme word of this chapter. The reasons for spiritual gifts, according to Paul, could not be clear. The edification of God's people. Uninterpreted tongues, as they are being practiced by the Corinthians, are inherently inferior to the prophecy, since, as Paul says in verse 4, prophecy edifies the church. But anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. When Paul says that uninterpreted tongues edify only the speaker, even this self-edification should not be seen as a virtue. Normally, the word edify is used in a positive sense. But as we saw in chapter 8, verse 10, it can be used ironically or sarcastically in a negative sense. In 8.10, Paul says, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be, there's the word emboldened, edified to eat what is sacrificed to idols. The word emboldened is our word edified. The weak believer will be built up or edified towards a sinful activity. He'll be encouraged to do something sinful. Idolatry, eating in this idol temple. If they see you there, this weak believer will think, it's okay. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm following his example. So you're edifying. Well, ironically, sarcastically, you're, you're building them up in the wrong, fine edification, you're building up in the wrong direction. It's not real edification. Um, Paul is not speaking positive when he says tongue speaking just for the sake of using a gift without interpretation is edifying the speaker. Instead, it's only building up the ego of the tongue speaker. The persons who were doing this felt very good about themselves. They were on display. It's very attractive. It's obviously very much like it is in the, apparently in the charismatic churches today that I have seen. When Paul says that the person speaking in tongues is said to edify themselves, the broader context also, also suggests that Paul is not commending the use of tongues as a means of self-edification because that would contradict the purpose of spiritual gifts. They are given for the common good to edify the church, excel in those gifts that build up the church, 14.12. Paul will go on to argue in this chapter that intelligibility is essential to edification, which raises doubts about the incomprehensible private tongues as a means of self-edification. If intelligibility, intelligibility is essential to edification, and I think it is, 
You've got to know to be built up. If intelligibility is essential to edification when the church is assembled, and Paul will argue that, why would unintelligibility be acceptable privately if Paul means that the one who speaks in tongues edifies themselves in a positive sense? In other words, if uninterpreted tongues cannot edify the church, how can tongues edify the individual privately apart from comprehension? Or to state the question in reverse, if unintelligible tongues can edify the individual, why not the whole church? You know, if, 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 if unintelligible tongues can edify the individual, why won't Paul let them be done in the church? They can edify the, the church the same way. The idea of incomprehensible tongues as private edifying prayer runs counter to Paul's argument as a whole and to the corporate purpose and function of spiritual gifts. Uninterpreted tongues that edify only the speaker is not a virtue, but a vice. It's an instance of self-exaltation that meets with Paul's disapproval and should be avoided. Verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be edified. Paul now repeats the theme of this section in different words. Paul affirms the gift of tongues is very worthwhile. There's nothing inherently wrong with tongues, but his preference is for prophecy, that one who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues because the assembled church always receives edification from prophecy. But only if there is an interpretation for what is spoken in a foreign language can the church be edified. Now, he's going to go on to support that proposition in verses 6 through 19. Here's what he's going to say. Paul now turns to support his proposition that prophecy is superior to tongues by elaborating on the link between intelligibility and edification. Intelligibility is the key to edifying speech. Without understanding, there is no edification. And that's what he's going to argue here in verses 6 through 19, but we will take that up next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Pray you'll give us understanding of these particular matters in Scripture and that we might uh, seek in our own lives uh, to help others to be a benefit to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to build them up in faith in the Christian faith, in love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.